This podcast hands you the keys to scaling revenue in the SaaS and tech industry fast. Join Mike Williams, CEO of Jetstream Revenue Growth, as he talks with tech and SaaS business leaders who share proven approaches on how to get your revenue to take off. All right, welcome to this episode of the Jetstream podcast. Just spoke with Aram Malkomev. He's the founder and CEO of CrowdLaker. We had a really great conversation uh, talking about revenue growth, but we also talked a lot about startups. Uh, and one of the things that he really highlighted uh, is the importance of product management. And I've become a big believer in product management uh, over the years uh, as well and understanding what its importance is, what its fit is and why it matters. Uh, even in early stages, uh, of a startup business. Uh, you need to have an understanding of your product market fit. You need to be able to communicate that throughout your business. But most importantly, you need to take stakeholder feedback from all departments in all areas of the business, customer, sales, marketing, legal, uh, finance, uh, investors, board members, everyone, and build the correct product that hopefully is something that is interesting uh, and appealing enough uh, to customers that they want to buy it. So hopefully it's a painkiller and not just a vitamin, but it's up to that product manager, that product person to ensure that that's happening. And so this is obviously key to revenue growth. If you don't have a product that is intriguing, interesting, compelling, and something that people want to buy that solves a real pain or problem for them, it's going to be really difficult to get some traction uh, on your business which is something else that we, we talked about a fair bit as well is getting traction for your business in order to get investment in order to create uh, revenue uh, for your business so that you can grow. And a lot of investors, as Aram highlighted, will be looking for some traction, some proof of concept, something that shows that, hey, this business has something there uh, and that is investable. Of course, investors will invest in people that they like uh, that have, you know, maybe a lot of energy or they like the way that they speak. But if you can show that plus traction, uh, plus a little bit of revenue through bootstrapping uh, for as long as you possibly can, it's going to be easier to fundraise. And the reason we talk about fundraising is that fundraising for a lot of companies is a big way uh, or an important way to grow that much faster and grow your revenue that much faster. So sometimes you need capital to make a lot more uh, capital. That may not always be true, but it is uh, true in a lot of ways. And it is a path, as Aram mentioned, of do you want to go down that investor path? If you do start taking investment, you're likely to continue to do that. It's going to be a big part of your business versus if you choose the bootstrapping way, you're probably going to go that way for a long period of time before you take investment, if you ever take uh, investment uh, at all. So we had a really good conversation uh, around that. Uh, we also talked a little bit about Aram's podcast where he's talking about more of this information. So I definitely uh, listen for that. Uh, check out, he's got a couple of different uh, podcasts where he talks uh, about these concepts if you want to learn more uh, from Aram. But uh, really interesting uh, podcast today with Aram from CrowdLinker. Check it out. Learn from his uh, learnings and I definitely suggest following him, checking him out on the socials, YouTube, uh, and learning more from him because he seems to have a ton of experience after being around this space uh, for a long time. Uh, showing you how to grow your uh, startup, how to uh, increase your revenue and grow your business. So definitely check that out and enjoy the podcast today. Okay, welcome to this episode of the Jetstream podcast. Uh, super excited to have our guest here with us today. We've got Aram Malkumev, uh, and he's the founder and CEO of CrowdLinker. 
Uh, really excited to have you here, Aram. Thanks uh, so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Mike. Yeah, so a little bit about Aram. He's a tech and serial entrepreneur. He's the CEO and co-founder of Crowdlinker, which is a Toronto-based digital product design and software consultancy that produces world-class design development and strategy for mobile, web, and other uh, emerging technologies. Uh, Ram is passionate about innovation, digital transformation uh, across many industries and takes a unique uh, perspective uh, to support and guide companies, big or small, to the next product opportunities. Uh, he's been at this for about 12 years, co-founded three companies, raised capital, scaled teams, uh, and isn't afraid to roll up his sleeves and get in there and help businesses grow. Uh, outside of his day-to-day, Aram is an avid investor in the technology space, as well as an advisor and mentor to dozens of startups through his participation with Accelerprise and Loyal VC. Uh, again, thanks for being here. Uh, tell us a little bit about Crowdlinker. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mike. Uh, that was a long intro. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you've, um, you've been doing a lot of great things. So. Uh, I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, Crowdlinker, you said it, it's, uh, we're a product development innovation firm. Um, we've been around for eight years. Um, have an office in Toronto, another office in New York, and I'm actually based here in Barcelona. So I'm trying to expand our presence. Um, we actually started off as a SaaS company building our own products. And then uh, we went through various accelerators, incubators, and then had to pivot at the time because uh, our product uh, wasn't working as how we expected. So we pivoted and started working with a lot of startups, um, helping them with their own products. Because uh, we had a, lo a lot of uh, presence in the Toronto startup tech community, helping um, helping them create their MVPs and uh, and helping them get to market and find customers. So then, over the next five years, after we pivoted, we grew into an end-to-end -end, um, uh, product studio where we do everything from strategy, design, engineering, and marketing uh, for startups, scale-ups, and enterprises. So, like with, with startups, we typically work with non-tech founders. So we act as that kind of product team for them, mm -hmm. uh, getting their first version of their product off the ground and to market. Uh, with scale-ups, we typically work with like heads of product, CTOs, CPOs, where we um, take uh, an initiative or take ownership of a new product angle, idea, or we improve an existing product and help them um, reinvent it. And then with at enterprises, we work uh, typically with innovation teams. So like uh, with NBC, with um, MLC and all these other companies, uh, we work on, um, you know, one to two year out kind of plans uh, for their businesses. And uh, yeah, we're, we're pretty vertically ag agnostic. So we, we've built about 50 products to date to market and uh, yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And uh, you mentioned a little bit about product management there, and this is something that I've learned so much uh, in the last, you know, sort of five years of my career. Uh, I kind of was doing product management before without realizing I was doing product management, so I wasn't doing a very good job. And so I've taken a couple courses, read some books, learned from people, and really taken this product manager management approach. And I just don't see that many companies understanding it or valuing it as importance. And I keep seeing it show up in so many different ways. Like everything is a product that should be managed. The campaign I create, the company I create, that product I create, the service, you know, mm -hmm. product management shows up in so many ways. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about product management and, and how that works and why that's so important to a growing company? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, we had our own fair share. Maybe we talk through some of our own experiences and examples like when we were growing, um, 
we had project management as like a service. Um, but then over time, when we started expanding into new services and, you know, instead of only just doing de develop development only services, we started doing design services, then we started strategy. And then that's when we really realized, and this is, I think, when product management was really starting to pick up and, you know, get like a lot of recognition, was that our product managers basically act as like mini CEOs or like general managers for the client accounts that they have. So they are like the ones responsible and accountable for the success or failure of any product. And they're the ones that manage the team on a daily basis. And they're like our go-to or you know, the client's go-to point of contact. Um, product managers on our end also are the ones that really work with the business stakeholders and they take those business objectives from them and really identify, okay, based on the strategy that they need, what kind of approach do we need to execute on? Um, so through the lifeline of a whole product from, you know, ideation or conceptualization of a new idea, when we work with our clients, the product managers are like the focal point. They're the ones who really take on the whole uh, responsibility of like really ensuring that the project is going to be set up for success or the getting stakeholder alignment, um, just uh, honestly a, a big task of any PM in any organization, big or small, it's like getting insur ensuring that there's stakeholder alignment. It's really reducing risk as much as possible. So really doing as much research and market uh, of, you know, for example, uh, are there any existing off the shelf solutions that we could repurpose and reuse to our advantage instead of going and creating something custom and expensive, right? Mm -hmm. So it's always being at that kind of forefront of knowing, okay, um, what is the most effective path here for us to build a product and take it to market? And it's like going through is like, is there something existing in market? Uh, can we use it? Can we build on top of it? What is that going to look like? Um, okay, if not, then okay, what is it going to look like if we actually do build a product from scratch? And I think it's important to, you know, note that uh, there's so much there's so much saturation out there in terms of existing software mm -hmm. that you sometimes don't need to go and create a new product from scratch. <sighs> you could piggyback off existing ones. The whole no code movement is like really growing in popularity. There's entire businesses that are now running on totally no code software where you don't have to be a, an engineer to get your software up and running anymore. You could just, you know, click around, throw a couple of things together and connect it to like an air table or something. And then you got your database, you got to get your front end and then you're good to go. So I think product management is an evolving role because I see in the future in many ways, there's going to be a big shift, um, a disruption in the software realm where there's like also a lot of uh, uh, team dynamics that are going to be changing and like more product managers are probably going to have to roll up their sleeves a bit more and actually be able to do some of these things themselves. So like mm -hmm. the skill sets are constantly evolving. Like there's always more and more pressure and responsibility put on PMs these days. Yeah, no, for, for sure. I, I think it's like you mentioned, it's such a key role and it's central uh, to a company. I think it's very difficult to be a product manager and remain sort of neutral, like, because you got to gather all this information from so many different angles. And people usually think of like sales and marketing or the dev team, but it's also like legal and might be the board and it might be some external factor. And then you have to like remain neutral 
and not thrust your own opinions on it because that's going to mess up the product. Um, so hopefully you're right in that, that it is changing and that people are starting to really evaluate it. But, you know, here in Victoria, I don't see as many companies creating product management positions. They're looking for project managers. You know, they're looking for marketers, salespeople, those sort of traditional roles. Um, I do see like a product marketer role, mm -hmm. but that product management role is kind of missing. And I think it's just so key to figure out just what your product is or what you're doing as a business or where's your best opportunity by gathering all this information and then, you know, finding out from that information, what's the best move forward. Yeah. No, it's interesting. You mentioned about product marketing because like in, I have kind of a, a different perspective, like in, in Toronto, like product management has been around for a long time, actually. Mm. Um, a lot of it kind of really stemmed from like the Valley in terms of like, I think the term and like the responsibility of like that individual, but, um, a product man, a product, uh, product manager's role has really been evolved and it's, it led to, in my opinion, the creation of the product marketer, because, um, a lot of the people who I know who are product marketers were actually product product role um, team members before they were either product managers or something like that because in product and in, in product management there's obviously a big onus of you in terms of creating a product but then also you know checking its stats its analytics its success you're looking at like user growth constantly you're looking at churn and you know all these other stats and that responsibility really started growing and that led in many ways to the role of like a product marketer to get created who then you know takes on these initiatives and then they work very closely together um the sorry the one thing i just want to say i think oh really important for businesses to give their product managers access to their PL of 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 their business especially like for the product mm. so that they know like what are my restrictions what are my boundaries um and then that gives them that sense of like ownership at the end of the day because they know how much money they have what is the timeline that they have to work within and it empowers them to then go and figure out a solution to tackle that yeah absolutely and i find a lot of times you know dream, uh, entrepreneurs are dreamers and so they come up with these wild and crazy ideas. And I think those things are amazing. But at some point you have to come down to reality and say like, well, what's the resources we have, the time, money, and the people to put exactly. towards this. Uh, and I think that that's the product manager's job. And, you know, you're talking about the product market. I just made me think about like, we, we always want to avoid like creating silos within companies. Cause I think that creates a lot of inefficiencies and a lot of real communication problems. There's lots of bridge positions like the product manager, the product marketer, you know, the, the, you know, someone on the, the dev team that kind of translates communication, maybe that is the, the product manager, but there's a lot of bridge positions that are missing. And I would assume a lot of startups don't have the bandwidth to have all of those bridge positions to ensure that communication is effective. Um, so I'm, I'm curious your, your thoughts on that, but I also want to build on the bigger topic here, which is revenue growth and, and through your experience with Crowdlinker and working with startups, you know, what are some of the, the key things for revenue growth? And so maybe that's a two-parter of how do companies that are smaller deal with communication problems that don't have these bridge positions mm -hmm. and then start to build on this idea of, 
how do you how do you grow revenue in a smaller company it's challenging right yeah for sure okay it's um i'll tackle the first part first um, okay so i think in a startup and i'm seeing this more and more starting to come up which is great is um a lot of like non-technical founders especially they try to roll their up sleeves and try to figure it out and like that's not what their focus should be they should be focused on revenue right mm-hmm. in terms of getting to market getting customers getting paying customers more importantly so I've seen uh, product product managers as one of like the first roles that people try to hire for now these days, especially mm. when they're non-technical. Um, one thing to look for, I think, in a product manager is seeing if they have prior experience as a developer. Um, I've seen a lot of success with PMs who have an existing background in 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 software development. If not in software development, the next one I would probably say is like in design. So any designers turn product managers, those are also really great. Um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to revenue, yeah, I mean in in my specific setting, like uh, we have a very strong correlation between like a billable team and like revenue. So you know from a headcount perspective, anytime we try to bring on a new client or stuff like that, we try to bring on a rep, you know, a team member, um, who, you know, we could drive revenue from at the end of the day for the client project, because we build them out on, you know, on an hourly basis or on a weekly basis or whatever it is. And so, um, in all of our engagements, we have product managers, uh, involved. So they are that team member on our end who goes and forms the team internally and then brings them to the project. Um, and so, it's like a pod at the end of the day, like a, a, like a unit that gets formed and then they're assigned and dedicated to a project. And, um, you know, from a revenue perspective for us, we just charge out our, our team on a weekly or monthly basis, something consistent uh, over multiple months. And then that way, m- my allocation plan and my like revenue projections are kind of set, right? It's very consistent. Um, so like if we bring on a new client, then I need to go and figure out, okay, where do I, where, how can I form a new team? Do I need to hire? And so like over the last year, we've really scaled that out by focusing out on this type of newer, um, structure. So then there's like a, a lot more consistency, less variability amongst like our revenue. And it's kind of like a SaaS model at the end of the day, because it's very consistent, um, right. our, our revenue growth. So anytime we add a new client, we bring on a team, that team then has a very consistent uh, um, charge, you know, to the client and for us from like a revenue uh, perspective. Yeah, you make me think a lot about, there's a book, I think it's called Predictable Revenue. I can't remember the author's name. I think he used to work at Salesforce years ago. Uh, Yes, I I think so. Yeah, shoot, I can't remember his name. Uh, But, you know, I think that if we can all create that consistent revenue, I think maybe that's why VCs and uh, love the SaaS model is they're like, mm-hmm. we can predict this and we can see how this is going to go. Exactly. But you can do that with a services business as well. There's no reason why you can't create predictable revenue um, and, and a model that scales up uh, as well. I think maybe sometimes that gets forgotten or lost in that, hey, we can back the SaaS predictable model into services model and i think vcs get very hung up on the product but i've seen some very successful services businesses that are growing rapidly with or without uh investment uh, as well so it doesn't have to be 
a product or not not a product right yeah it's it's a it's i've banged my head against this for a long time <laughs> any investor that i've spoken to or even some of our own clients and some of our partners we have this conversation a lot it's it's very hard because investors just don't see it that way they're like oh you're a service you're a professional service business you make money off of like human capital right it's 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 hard to scale at the end of the day because it's associated directly in terms of with your revenue you need more people to make more revenue right um it's a tough argument because like investors always want that kind of a SaaS model because it's it's very clean it's very clear it's scalable you don't you could you could have a multi-million dollar ARR business with just a couple of people you know mm-hmm. in the, in the SaaS model um, but there are ways to kind of like even in the digital marketing side like uh, you know it, it's not a direct correlation to like um, from a revenue perspective in terms of what you could do like with our with our company we have a uh, a sister company called crowd digital where it's it's a it's a digital marketing services sure. that we do and uh, we spun it off a while ago uh, which i originally started and um it's it's consistent like it's uh it's many month long contracts sometimes upwards to a year and um uh we charge at the same fee and it it's like when we do paid advertising management or whatever it's once you get it up and running, you're just really just like checking in, right? But you're still charging the same amount. So like that's that's kind of scalable, but like there's only at the same time, then only so many uh, clients that an account manager can effectively right. and successfully control without things slipping. And then you have to hire another account manager, right? Essentially. Um, so yeah, it's like a, it's like a, uh, it's a never ending debate because I know tons of great service companies that make a lot of money and investors don't want to touch them. Yeah. yeah it's really interesting. But you're right. Like everybody has that. I don't know what you would call it. Like the, the limitation of scale where like, oh, I got to add another account manager. And if it gets big enough, I got to add this other person. I would assume that the SaaS is just, you know, just totally different in that you don't have to add another person, but you do have server costs and other costs that goes along with that support costs. Uh, so yeah. maybe it's a matter of how we're, looking at it, but I don't know if you've read, I don't know you're familiar with Rand Fishkin, right? Mm-hmm. He, he has a book that's out and he was kind of arguing some of those points and saying like, Hey, you, you know, a services business is a totally value, valuable, valid business that can make a lot of money. And in the end of it, you can own a, a larger portion of it. So maybe there are other ways to, to, to raise capital uh, and find ways to grow. And I think that that's becoming more and more interesting as well is, is like non-dilutive capital and other ways exactly. to like raise money. Um, I don't know, maybe you have some thoughts on that because I think maybe that's not directly tied to revenue growth, but businesses need fuel to get rolling and going. And I think if without that, you can't get to that revenue growth stage sometimes. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. And uh, it's it's something I talk a lot about on on our own um, a podcast. It's called Off the Record, where I meet with like investors and founders to talk about uh, fundraising and how you deploy your capital. Um, but just going back for a second, I think with SaaS companies, at the end of the day, you have to realize that they also have their limitations in terms right. of um, their their own human capital, because you know a, a company you gets from you know, say zero to 10,000 MRR and then goes to 20. And then like, if they really want to go maybe to a new market or whatever, they need to hire more people to help them. So like, sure. where do they do it, right? If they bootstrap it the whole way, it'll just take them a lot longer to get there. 
But if they want to accelerate the whole process of getting the getting to market faster for whatever various reasons, competitors are coming to their space, or there's like a some sort of a first mover advantage, then that's where you go to get capital, right? And there are uh, you get that money so that you could hire more people. So it's kind of like it's the same thing at the end of the day, right? <laughs> So you need money at the end of the day. And uh, whether it's through a service company or a SaaS company, through a service company, at least you're organically driving your own revenue mm-hmm. um, in order to pay for that more growth of the team and hiring more people to keep servicing. And then with the SaaS business, you're just getting external ca- capital to hire more people to go hit your objectives faster at the, right. same, at the same time. Um, more and more these days, there's tons of ways to get capital. And like I've seen a lot of companies that actually in the last six, seven months raise crazy amounts of money. And like, it's never been, I think a better time for uh, the venture community or for startups to get money from, uh, from, uh, from VCs. Uh, in my opinion, it's also because of the pandemic uh, led to a lot of people just, you know, saving a bunch of cash. And now they're just trying to like disperse it or distribute it and diversify their own portfolios and uh, invest in more in startups, which have maybe a higher risk, but maybe a higher reward at the end of the day. Um, and there's tons of capital. There's like, you know, non-dilutive uh, through in Canada, there's the BDC, there's many mm-hmm. grant programs. There's the Ontario Centers for Excellence, um, which um, in, in Ontario gives different types of grants for startups. There's so many options out there, like even things like IRAP, mm-hmm. um, which is a federal, which is a fed dev, um, a project initiative where you could get anywhere, uh, from 30,000 to like millions of dollars in, uh, capital R and D money, which is non-dilutive. No, uh, you know, you don't get any board seat or whatever that you lose. Right. Um, and then in Canada, we're lucky enough to have something called shred where we, it's a tax incentive where we can get our money back on any, you know, R and D innovation. Um, but then at the same time, those are always uh, funding options that aren't always guaranteed. Like you might not get shred anymore for whatever reason, or they might get audited or whatever. So that's why like uh, some capital is, is just, I find so easy to come by these days that a lot of people just go and, and they just go and, and get some angels or there's lots of angel organizations as well um, that you could go and get that capital that you need to grow your business. Yeah, really interesting. We had uh, Lloyd Lobo from Boast Capital. I don't know if you know Lloyd. I know. Yeah, from Vancouver. And, you know, they're helping to get those funds out there faster, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are this, there there is this amount of money that's kind of just sitting there that is being underutilized or not utilized at all. And it's, it can be a complicated process. I've been a part of shred applications and IRAPs and audits. And, you know, it's like, just give me the money so that we can get going and go faster. Uh, but you do need that capital injection. Uh, and I'm kind of curious your opinion in, in Canada. I know you're in Barcelona right now, but you have a, you know, Canada's maybe home or yeah. you understand the Canadian market. You know, we're talking about predictable revenue and st- companies creating predictable revenue. Do you feel like investors get too hung up on that or that like ROI and they need to just, you know, maybe not every investment needs to just be like a bet. Like, hey, I just feel good about this one. I'm going to put some money into this it might turn into something, or I just like this guy. He doesn't have a predictable revenue model, or he doesn't even have a, you know, a, a, a pro forma that's showing any inflection. He says, I like his idea. I think I like him. Do you, is there enough of that? Just take a bet happening or are too many investors looking for a return too soon? 
I think the market in Canada is slowly getting uh, less conservative. <laughs> like my my, what I always like to say is that if you're raising money, uh, this is actually, I think, still current today. If you really want to get money on great terms, U.S. is where you should go. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you should go and and test out your business and your pitch with the Canadian investors first, because they're actually going to be the one who are going to be most critical of it. So you could perfect your pitch and you know your ask with the Canadian investors, but really go get the money in the US. Like so many founders that I speak to, they just get more money on better terms, you know, way more flexibility, um, lose less control, like including board seats uh, with US investors and Canadian. Um, but I think to your point around like, you know, ROI and profitability, I think if you can get your business to getting um, to a point where it's about a 15, you know, say 15 to 30,000 MRR um, and you're growing still like month over month, you're a prime candidate to go and easily get money, um, you know, from anybody really these days. Um, they just want to see the money. They want to see the revenue at the end of the right. day. That's like the biggest thing for them. Uh, profitability is something that, you know, they'll just like look the other way. It's all about like revenue growth and what, what your kind of TAM is, um, your total addressable market potential. Right. That's really what they really want to look for. And like, depending on the investors, like I think once you fundraise once, you're forever fundraising. Uh, <laughs> so that's like just the path you picked. Um, it's very hard to get out of it eventually if you, if you go down that realm. Um, I would just recommend bootstrapping yourself all the way until you have that inflection point in your business that you need the capital in order to get to the next level. Um, and investors really, you know, some I know, like some of them is just gut. Some look at track record, like a lot of our clients, their founders and CEOs, they've exited two, three times. So like when they go and they say, I have a new idea, people just throw money at them because they're like, okay, like, I don't care what this guy's idea is. I know he's going to figure it out and I'm going to make my money. (laughs) So like, People who have track record and former like um, exits, like for them, it's 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 really easy to go and get investments. For first-time founders who have an idea, it's it's a it's an uphill battle mm-hmm. for them, I think. And uh, what I would recommend is bootstrap as much as you can, because if you raise money too early, you're gonna get really shitty terms. They're gonna like lose probably like 40 percent of your company if like if it. Uh, um, depending on who you speak to. Um, and then you have to realize that if you keep fundraising after like a couple of rounds, you probably only own a couple of percentage points. So like, what's, what's the point, right? Like you're gonna, like, who are you doing this for anymore? Yeah. Um, so like my recommendation is bootstrap as much as you can for as long as you can get the, get the traction, you know, try to get to that product market fit where you have consistent revenue, consistent user growth, and then you can negotiate terms because if an investor sees that you have traction and you're growing and you have that revenue potential there, like you are the one who is dictating the terms in many ways because they like businesses that, um, that have revenue. Yeah. 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 No, I, I agree. I appreciate, uh, all, all of what you're saying, uh, but I'm going to ask you a tough question. <laughs> Fire. <boy. laughs> You know, you mentioned bootstrapping and getting traction and, and, you know, starting to grow that revenue, you know, what, what, how do you, how do you do that? 
right? Because it feels a bit like a catch-22. Like if you're looking for a job and you need the experience, you need the mm-hmm. job to get the experience, right? So like in order to get the revenue, sometimes you need the money. In order to get the money, sometimes you, you need the revenue is kind of what you're saying. So how in those early days do you create that traction? How do you, how do you bootstrap? And maybe that's a bigger question, but you know, how do you kind of get some revenue (laughs) happening? You know, if you're say a coder with an idea and you build something and you're like, Hey, no one's showing up. How do I market this? And how do I pay for that? So how do you get that going? Uh, It's a tough question to answer. And that's why I'm asking it. (laughs) But some top level points I would say is, um, make sure you're speaking to your customers from day one. Mm-hmm. Don't go build anything until you have spoken to enough customers. You've proven out some sort of need that exists, that there's enough, there's a big enough problem uh, for them to pay you money for. And I always recommend uh, saying to your customers, okay, cool. Like I'm not doing this for free. This is going to be potential my life source of you know, how I'm going to sustain myself. If I go build this product, can can we do some sort of like a financial commitment? You know, give me, I don't know, a thousand dollars and you get like, I don't know, 50 people to, to commit to this. Then you have your first 50 K. Um, and then that could be used as, um, credits on, on file, or they get exclusive access for, I don't know, six months when the product actually launches. So, um, they they obviously would get something back in return, um, that they'll use, but that way, you know that there's a big enough problem to solve because people are going to give you money for it. If people say, yeah, you know what, go, go figure it out and come back to me when, you know, it's ready, then it's not a burning, burning uh, enough problem for them to give you money for. And those are hard. Those like it require a lot of um, conversations. It's um, a lot of customer discovery uh, that you have to do. You have to go find those. You have to find those potential targets. I don't know depending on the business you're in, it could be via community, you know, online, you could, you know, throw up a landing page, put a hundred bucks on, on Google ads and run some traffic to it and see how many conversions you get. And then those people who convert, maybe reach out to them saying, why did you convert? Um, Let's have a conversation about what, what, uh, what led you to uh, giving me your email address and uh, you know, uh, understanding what they're looking for. Um, and I think your first, I would say your first 10 paying customers, if, it, if it's a B2B product that you're doing, um, you should be working with them very closely. Um, um, they should, you should be testing with them all the time. And there's lots of software out there that can help you do it. Even like if you want to validate something, there's usertesting.com and usabilityhub.com that I recommend where you could go through up your prototype on there. Your, your, you know, your clickable wireframe or whatever it is. And then uh, you can select the users that you want to target. They have like a massive user base. Uh, so if it's like accountants that you're targeting, they have accountants. They'll go review your product and give you feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it just always just comes down to uh, having a very close relationship with like your first customers uh, and just making sure that they're paying you for your time. Um, if, if they're not paying you for your time, then I don't think you really have a product. Interesting. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, if it's not a burning enough problem for them to give you money for, then I don't know. I don't think it's a problem worth solving. 
Right. Which, which comes back to what we started out talking about was, which is product management. Cause it sounds a lot like, Hey, that's like a product management role of like, Hey, it talk is. to your customer, understand them. And then, you know, something that, that I see happening a lot in digital marketing is, you know, people are, you know, losing themselves in the algorithm and things are changing with iOS and privacy mm-hmm. and data and attribution and all this. So we're getting lost in that, but ultimately what it comes down to is understand your customer and market to them. It doesn't matter if you understand Facebook ads or Google ads, if you understand your customer and understand how to reach them, you'll be able to reach them. You'll find a way to reach them. But if you don't have that core understanding, then it's really difficult to grow through marketing, through sales, grow your product, build a valuable product that, like Mm -hmm. you said, if your problem is not worth solving or it's, you know, it's a vitamin versus a painkiller, that's problematic. And, And that's, not the end of your business necessarily, but it's better to understand that pivot, change, grow, find a way to, to get that traction. So I think that's really, really valuable uh, advice. And, you know, I, I know I asked you a tough question and I think you did a great job of answering that. So thanks. No, I mean, it's, I could have a conversation on this topic for hours because <laughs> there's just so many things to do and to learn from that I've seen with our own clients and other founders, friends of mine. Like it, it's, there is no, one rule solution for this it's a mixed bag of different types of things and think uh strategies you should you know do um but i think ultimately it's just making sure that you're speaking to your customers um you're trying to quickly get to revenue through some sort of commitment or something um what i did before for a b2b uh, startup i had was i had I did a design myself, like a prototype of something. And then I went to all these real estate, um, uh, real estate um, uh, owners who run like, like large, large real estate agencies. And I asked them all like, hey, do you like this idea? Yes. And I got them all to sign binding LOIs. Mm. And in those binding LOIs, there was like terms. It was like, okay, once, I, once you're going to give me money, once... Uh, <laughs> Once the product's ready, you will, you know, get a discounted rate per, per realtor on it mm. uh, for six months, right? So you'll have exclusive access. You'll be one of the first people to use it at a discounted price. And that worked. I had like 11 LOIs that I signed. Um, and then that way I was able to go to investors and saying, hey, look, I have 11 real estate agencies who are all going to give me money. They have this, you know, commitment made with me. I need, I need now like 100K to go build up the MVP. Um, Right. So, so it's like a proof of concept. Yeah. Uh, like I try to just try to get something like like committal. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word for this, but so that you have something like tangible that you could. You, yeah. You it feels like the, the lowest form of the, the, the least form of traction. Like maybe it's not running exactly. and driving business. It's like, hey, but there's proof that this is something and these people are interested in it, that they would yeah. pay money for it if it existed. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And there's just so much you could do, but that's just what I've seen worked and it leads to a bit more of a safety net and investors would they then be a bit more confident as well. Right. Which is the goal when raising Which money is, is to get their confidence. Yeah. Exactly. Awesome. Well, well, Rama, it was great to have you on. Uh, and now you have your own podcast uh, as well, where you're talking about these concepts. Uh, you know, what's the podcast? Where can uh, people listen to it, check it out and learn more from you? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mike, for uh, bringing that up. Um, we have uh, we have two podcasts. One is, well, actually, one is a podcast. Another one is a 
is a video show. Uh, so the podcast is called Off the Record, um, where I interview founders and VCs about um, their their growth journeys around you know how to raise capital and how to spend it effectively. And that's uh, you could check that out on on my LinkedIn page. That's where you could uh, go and get the links. It's on I think Spotify. Uh, Apple and Google. And then we have a video uh, series called uh, Product Innovation Series where I interview product leaders um, and I ask them golden nugget type of strategies that I extract from them around how to be successful in product management, uh, how they built and scaled their teams. Um, I interview lots of scale up um, uh, C suite individuals as well as like enterprise leaders. Um, so yeah, those are two shows that we have. Um, a lot of the content is actually on our YouTube page, so you could check that out as well. Yeah, YouTube.com/slash/crowdlinker, I think. Okay, cool. And then where else can they find you or follow you on on the socials? Uh, LinkedIn. Um, I put all the content on my LinkedIn as well. Awesome. Well, it's great to uh, have you on. Appreciate uh, you coming in and sharing all of your wisdom. Uh, and thank you so much for uh, for being here. Yeah, no problem. Anytime, Mike. Thank you so much. All right, bye. Thanks for listening to the Jetstream podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. If you have a revenue growth story to share, email us, info at jetstream.agency. We might have you on the show.